we're listening to you. We're hearing where you need our help. Over the past months, we've repeatedly heard a powerful and challenging question with only slight variation. The big question for the final months of 2021 seems to be, how do I continue to lead, to inspire, and to motivate my team when I myself am epically burned out? Welcome to The Behaviorist with Work Wisdom, where we help you adopt high-performance mindsets, behaviors, communication, and culture. I'm your host, Kedrin Crosby. Our intention for The Behaviorist podcast is to share accessible, concrete practices that you can weave into your whole life to begin a shift toward joy and meaningful achievement. Today, we're focusing on burnout. We will talk about what it is, what it's not, the fact that it's not a deficiency in self-care for the individual, but rather is a system-wide concern of the whole organization. And we will do our very best to share some tips for how you as a leader continue to lead when you are feeling exhausted, hopeless, and ineffective. I feel extremely lucky to have Dr. Carmela Tress from the Work Wisdom team here today to discuss this complex and important topic with me. Dr. Tress, when we talk about burnout at Work Wisdom, we're not talking about stress. We really focus on the fact that burnout has three distinctive characteristics, which are different from distress. Can you tell us about those three dimensions that different, differ from typical stress? Yeah, absolutely. We're thinking a lot about that Um, increased sense of cynicism, difficulty Mm -hmm. connecting with some of the positive emotions that would typically be um, present in the work environment, maybe even drew people to that particular work environment. Um, The sense of decreased uh, self-efficacy, that Mm. feeling of not being um, effective at work, perhaps not even being appreciated at work. And the emotional exhaustion, yes, um, emotional exhaustion and feeling like almost like a numbness or a difficulty tapping into emotion. And you can imagine even just in hearing that how they would interplay off of each other to feel like the things that one used to be able to tap into to be able to feel energized and a sense of meaning, purpose, joy, and work now isn't really there to tap into. The well is run dry. Yeah, I, I hear that phrase so often. There's no gas in the tank. Yeah, yeah. There's yep. just nothing left. So, so that emotional exhaustion is so different than overwork. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. I, and I've I've been fascinated, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where where someone can work a lot of hours but they don't become emotionally exhausted. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think is underneath that? You know, what, what do you think can cause someone to work really hard but not get to this place of emotional exhaustion in your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's something about the quality of the experience mm. that moves us in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. This isn't about quantity of time. Mm-hmm. It's about what happens when you're showing up. Mm-hmm. And so when people are finding themselves 
in work that is taking a toll and perhaps the environment isn't meeting them in a way that allows them to feel like they can thrive, rejuvenate, re-energize, mm. maybe even like it's a marathon where you hit the end, but then you find it was actually an ultra or an Ironman. <laughs> and so you're right. continuing to stare down the road like, I have to keep going. Mm-hmm. And so some people complete Ironmans and they are energized maybe they're even competing to win Mm -hmm. because there's a different quality Mm -hmm. with what's happening there Mm -hmm. um and I think you know we have to think about what um is happening in the environment of a particular agency or organization that is leading people either towards feeling excited and rejuvenated by the quantity of time they're putting in versus like they're crawling past the finish line and then finding they're actually not even at the finish line and just that sense of I have nothing left and I have to persevere here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes it's that relational aspect of our workplaces that can allow us to continue to work hard, but um, not become depleted emotionally. Sometimes it has to do with the meaning in our work, those things. Sometimes it's the empowerment, and I think that speaks to the decreased sense of self-efficacy or appreciation or feeling like what you're doing matters. So if your opinions are heard and valued, if when you bring up problems, they're actually addressed, even collaboratively, Mm -hmm. if your expertise you bring to the table is valued, and so you get to contribute in meaningful ways, those are all qualities that are going to keep you feeling energized, Mm -hmm. rather than you know, the opposite traits where you feel like repeated problems are happening over and over. Uh, When you bring them up, either you're shamed or, you know, kind of black sheeped Mm -hmm. because you're bringing up these problems or they're ignored or kind of put to the side. These are some of the things that would leave you feeling uh, burned out or contributing to a feeling of burnout. Yeah, it's so, it's so challenging to be that leader of that organization. And so while one is feeling burned out themselves, also trying to create the kind of environment where others are not burning out. Uh, Last month, there was a great Indeed survey. I don't know if you saw this. 52% of the workforce is now saying that they are experiencing burnout. 52. Mm -hmm. So even as a leader, we might be feeling emotionally Uh, exhausted or cynical or uh, lacking efficacy ourselves. But then how do we bring along our teams when half of them are also Mm -hmm. experiencing burnout? Um, And that's up quite a bit. Pre-pandemic, that survey had said uh, 43% were experiencing burnout, but epidemic proportions Mm -hmm. for sure. So um, let's talk a little bit about the costs of burnout in the workplace. Uh, We can think about costs in all kinds of ways. What do you think of when you think about the costs of burnout in the workplace? Yeah. Um, Coming from the healthcare fields, the first things I think about are, you know, the risks of errors. 
And, you know, some errors have minor things, right? You accidentally bill things incorrectly, and then there's all this time and effort into correcting that so that you're not engaging in fraud or whatever. Um, but, you know, the potential that people could be harmed, mm -hmm. um, that mistakes could happen with equipment, you know, the kinds of things that could turn into really big deal things. And this is where we saw high reliability concepts first in aviation and then mm -hmm. coming over to healthcare start was really because these errors can have huge, huge tolls. So that's a, a really important cost. I also think about decreased productivity when we're not energized and when we're feeling like we're carrying around burdens that aren't built into our day to be able to carry around because life has lots of burdens in it. So when we're structuring our days like we're supposed to be machines already, we're going to have a decrease in productivity compared to expectations. But the more burdened, the more of a lag, the more cost. And then we have to figure out how do we address those costs. And so many places are saying they feel short-staffed, but it's actually about this differential between how much they're expecting and how they're setting up productivity versus kind of where they're allocating the resources and time. And so sometimes I think we're just a little shifted from what we think is gonna be helpful and trying to work with our teams to really understand the nature of the problem and where it's costing us mm -hmm. so that we can find solutions that will help this particular team, which mm -hmm. might be different from another team, yeah. I think becomes really important. But it's so crucial that we see that this is not just hidden cost. This is not just that somebody goes home and feels bad that day mm -hmm. because of things that happened at work. This is massive scale costs with a lot of potential risk that's looming. Mm -hmm. It's really important. Yeah. The, the, so the financial costs for sure, the physical costs of um, that un, unnecessary stress in mm -hmm. the workplace, the hopelessness. Absolutely. And I, I really liked what you were saying uh, about, you know, we'd probably become less creative so the opportunity costs as well. Well, we're always trying to give concrete, helpful practices to our listeners. So I'd like to start shifting the conversation over to some techniques that can help the work wisdom community begin experimenting to make life better for themselves and for their teams. So when we think about burnout and our ability to function for ourselves and even to lead and motivate others, we might be wise to think about the application of emotional intelligence to support coping abilities for ourselves and then weave them into our team cultures. One article that we really love at Work Wisdom is the Candy Wins and Annie McKee 2016 article entitled, Why Some People Get Burned Out and Others Don't. So what they did was they studied 35 chief medical officers at large hospitals around the country. What they found was 69% of those CMOs were experiencing huge amounts of stress, yet the majority of them were not burned out using the Maslick burnout inventory. Then they studied why those who did not burn out were able to stay engaged, even flourishing. There were five skills that were particularly helpful, 
And I'm wondering if leaders think through the application of these, not just for themselves, but for their organizational cultures, if we might begin successfully addressing burnout at the systems level. So I wanted to talk about these a little bit with Dr. Tress. Um, The first technique Candy and Annie describe is don't be the source of your own stress. Such wise words, right? Mm, So what do you think this means? And let's think a little bit about how we as leaders can apply this um, to prevent the emotional exhaustion, the cynicism, the lack of self-confidence associated with true burnout. What do you think? Don't be the source of your own stress. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. <laughs> I think I've seen it in a few different ways manifest in organizations. One is that tremendous pressure that leaders have to be able to get things done. And when the way we translate that pressure is by taking everything on ourselves, Mm -hmm. perhaps buying into stories that if we delegate, those things aren't going to be handled well, which should, should, (laughs) potentially could prompt us to consider how are we trusting our team? And if there are problems on the team, what are we going to do to try to address that? Can we train them up? Mm -hmm. Is it time for some people to move on? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think one of the ways that we can just contribute to our own sense of being spread too thin is by retaining too much and keep buying into that story that we have to be the one that's doing all of this. Mm. I've heard so many leaders say, I can't take that day off because nobody can do Mm. X if I'm not there. And to me, that's such a huge red flag Mm -hmm. because that that's it's so unrealistic to say I can never be sick. Mm-hmm. I can never have something happen where I am not at this workplace. And to me, that points right to an infrastructure problem, a mm-hmm. team problem. Yeah. If you can't delegate, we have to start asking why mm-hmm. is this that I'm struggling to let go of some control that could point us in one direction of things that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Is it that I'm having problems with my team, right? So really getting into the nature of the problem there. And I think other things that can drive that taking on too much are the stories that we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. about what makes us good and successful and feeling like we're buying into perfectionism Mm -hmm. and some of those other things that sometimes can have us pushing ourselves so hard that we're not counterbalanced. And I think that shifts into another one, which is being out of balance with work and life, not really recognizing. And I know that that because work and our other aspects of personal life are so intertwined because we're one human being, there's no such thing as a distinction, right? Right. But being able to pursue a balance where who we are as friends and partners and employers and employees, colleagues, we can start to think, how is the one refreshing the other? Mm -hmm. And if I'm feeling out of touch with, not refreshed, is it because I need more things in another domain? And that could go either way. It could be that 
Uh, I, I think I experienced this when I was on maternity leave. Mm. Actually, this story is coming to mind of how I longed to be back with my coworkers. Mm. I just couldn't wait for some of the projects that we were mm. excited about because being with my baby, mm -hmm. I felt like I was lacking some of the things that energized me professionally. Yeah. And so this can happen in any direction, but when we're feeling that kind of out of touch feeling, it, it's such an opportunity for us to get curious with ourselves mm -hmm. and be able to say, hmm, am I getting in my own way here? Is my body or heart or mind telling me something that I can be curious about and then move on? Yeah, fantastic. This idea of don't be the source of your own stress. We can go, we can talk about for, for a long time. Yeah. We can investigate. We can, um, we can maybe even heal um, mm -hmm. if, if we really fully understand that. In that ar same article, there were four other practices that had worked for those chief medical officers who didn't burn out. So the second one was recognizing their own limitations Huge. The so huge. And I love that one so much yeah. because sometimes we think that being a good leader means being kind of the demigod knower of all things. Yeah. And it's so amazing. I really believe that the more expertise someone builds, the more they know what they don't know yeah. and can defer. But, oh, does that lift burdens of pressure? Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah, yeah, that recognizing our own limitations. Um, we're probably going to need to return to that one in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, the mindfulness practices that they talked about to manage their anxiety, so they talked a little bit about um, physical mindfulness and, and box breathing and those kinds of things. They, they also talk in this article about uh, these CMOs were able to figure out how to reevaluate their perspective of the situations, uh, understanding what was distress, but what was actually eustress and how to move in the direction of what was life-giving and away from what was life-draining. And then also learning how to de-escalate conflicts by putting putting themselves in the other's shoes. So these five tips are concrete. We can think about them for ourselves. We can think about them for our teams that we're leading. Um, is there anything else that really resonates with you when you think about those, those additional four tips around recognizing limitations, mindfulness practices, reevaluating perspective of situations or de-escalating conflicts? I mean, every one of them is so important, yeah. right? Um, I've been a real um, fan of Adam Grant's Think Again book. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so wonderful to think of what it's like when rather than encountering information that's contra to our own and making all of the cognitive errors around doubling down and reconvincing ourselves, yeah. when we can bring curiosity instead mm -hmm. and purposely adopt other perspectives, mm -hmm. it can be very freeing, mm -hmm. though uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so if we're willing to put that mindful work into tolerating that discomfort, we can discover so much. Um, but the last one... Mm -hmm. De-escalating conflicts by putting yourself in others' shoes. In general, I think de-escalating conflict is very difficult because everyone brings a history that's 
way outside of the room that they're in when they're engaging in a conflict. Conflict is natural. We often perceive it as threatening when the the natural course of everyone looking out their own set of eyes means we will always take different perspectives on things. And sometimes perspectives will align close enough that we can easily be on the same page, but sometimes they won't. And therein is a natural conflict. And so if we approach conflict in a way that says, okay, this is just a different perspective. What can we do rather than engaging in some of these errors, taking it personally, Mm -hmm. thinking that this is an attack that's located to me, Mm -hmm. forgetting their history, the other person's history Mm -hmm. well before they even knew us, Mm -hmm. that also shapes the way that they engage in kind of the dynamics of a conflict, Mm -hmm. right? Tone of voice, words used, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. Then we can bring all these other skills to say, okay, okay, what must this be like for them? Let me get curious about what this is bringing up. And then we can engage in a more effective problem solving from this place of curiosity, compassion, mindfulness in the moment. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, what problem are we trying to solve here? Mm -hmm. Let's get really curious about that. Yeah, that is an excellent one. I I love... uh, Donatella Versace says that all creativity comes from conflict. And uh, it does require some egolessness. Um, but yeah, I agree. That's, a, that's an excellent technique. So thinking about what would it look like to weave those into our workplaces to model them for our teams is something else that might be the charge of leaders, especially when they're burning out. I can't really think about this advice from um, Candy and Annie without thinking about the brilliant Richard Boyatzis and his book, Resonant Leadership. So in that book, he, he writes about power stress, which is a different kind of distress associated with holding great amounts of responsibility while also having to be quite independent. In order to continue to be emotionally contagious in healthy, resonant ways, Boyatza says that the leader must engage in what he calls the renewal cycle. And of course, it varies by leader, but if we fail to go to renewal, we will become dissonant and we wreak havoc on our cultures and we make lousy decisions. So the renewal cycle is about intentionally engaging in three core elements. The first is mindfulness. The second is engaging in hope. And the third is engaging in compassion for both oneself and for one another. So, um, Carm, what are your thoughts about the renewal cycle and resonance? Have you seen it? Have you seen dissonance? What, what does it look like to you? What do you like about it? Oh, for sure. I've definitely seen both sides. Yeah. And I love those three components so much. I think, one, they're very adoptable. Mm-hmm. And they give us such a great perspective of things tangibly that we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of mindfulness sometimes through the lens of meditation. Mm-hmm. But I think in many of these cases, when we're talking about mindfulness, it's also sh- slowing down to show up to the moment and really start to observe what we're experiencing in our bodies, what stories our minds are telling us, Mm -hmm. what things are happening that maybe 
point us towards a problem to solve, something to do, rather than noticing if we're in the future anticipating all the things that could go terribly wrong, or in the past remembering prior times that are not now of things that have gone wrong, mm-hmm. that can kick up so much anxiety and stress because we're not living in this moment with these people, with this particular situation. Mm -hmm. But I wanna speak to that hope piece again for a second. Mm -hmm. This is where my clinical psychology hat comes on and Mm -hmm. I think about how we spend so much time trying to cultivate hope. And I remember when I was training to become a therapist, Mm -hmm. at times I found myself saying like, but if situations are bleak, like how? Mm. How do you cultivate hope? Yeah. And so often just knowing that there is something that can be done, mm. even if it's going to take a long time, that there's a small step we can take to move towards this valuable, important, meaningful future mm-hmm. can help us to tap into hope. Mm-hmm. If it's all doom and gloom and despair and nothing but, you know, ongoing corruption and oppression, of course, we're not going to be able to move towards change and protect from burnout and start feeling like we can um, tap into energy and all of these beautiful mm-hmm. things. And so I think the role that hope plays even for leaders who are finding themselves in quite a lot of binds at the same time, right? So many constraints that can pull different things to please at one time Mm -hmm. to be able to say in this moment with so much compassion for myself for how difficult this is, so much compassion for my organization, for the kind of layers and ripple effect of this, Mm -hmm. are there things that we can do that continue to move us towards the things that actually matter here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hope is so important. I think when Heidi Grant, um, she had a recent article out about uh, our brains were not meant for this much uncertainty, and she talks about realistic optimism. So as leaders right now, we need to instill hope, but with this realistic optimism mm-hmm. that, yeah, we are going to get to the other side not without a lot of work, Mm -hmm. not without some failure, not without lots of iteration. Mm -hmm. Um, Unrealistic expectations erode hope. Yeah. Because then we experience more disappointment than we typically would. Yeah. And so disappointment, when it starts to kind of accumulate, can leave us feeling like realistic hope isn't real, Mm -hmm. right? So we start to engage in some of these anticipatory errors because Mm -hmm. of that. So I love that you're pointing that out, being rooted in facts versus um, delusional optimism that ignores some of the things that um, are actually constraining us. Yeah, yeah, just sets us all up to have our expectations disappointed over and over again. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit more even about compassion, because in my own particular lived experience with um, burnout, I Compassion was such an important part of my own recovery. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the word isn't strong enough. I think it has to be love or, um, you know, it's more than Mm self-care. It's it's this question of what would I do if I valued myself? 
And that is a question that a lot of the leaders that I work with um, hold. And then they change their behavior once they've answered that. What would I do if I valued myself? I think it 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 is compassion, um, but maybe even goes to what would I do if I was a beloved guest Mm -hmm. or a beloved friend? Um, How would I treat that person or treat myself that way? And that's part of the the healing, I think, from burnout. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think that people listen to the behaviorist because they're interested in what we think really helps in very concrete ways. Uh, we've talked about the work of Boyatzis and, and the work from um, Candy and Annie that we love so much. I wanted to just ask you, you know, in your experience, have there been certain tools or mindsets or techniques that you feel are extremely helpful to either yourself or to uh, leaders that you've worked with in the past in preventing burnout or managing it once they're experiencing it? Anything else that comes to mind? I mean, for me personally, and in a lot of the work that I've done, hinging on compassion and mindfulness Mm -hmm. have been absolutely incredibly important. But Mm -hmm. I think with this perspective taking, because so often rethinking some of the things that are uh, burdensome to us that are contributing to the drag. I think about how we expect ourselves so often to be machines, to Mm -hmm. be computers Mm -hmm. that can run 24 seven, maybe slow down a little bit and we get angry at them Mm -hmm. and, you know, we might increase their processing speed or something. And so often in this kind of industrialized society, we expect ourselves to operate like machines Mm -hmm. and just, I think it is a compassionate stance, but realizing like, oh, I'm not a machine. I'm not actually a superhero or a demigod. Like I don't get to (laughs) to be like that. So uh, what I need is different. And through different stages of life, how fast or slow I go, the things that I need to rejuvenate, the balances I need are going to change all the time. Mm-hmm. We're not doing something wrong. I often point out to people that I'm working with or collaborating with or coaching that the seasons are one of the most natural things we experience. Mm-hmm. Times of new growth, new life, times of just celebration and mm-hmm. thriving, times where some things are falling away, mm-hmm. sometimes with a glorious autumn, mm-hmm. right? Where things are just beautiful, but also shedding. And then times of dormancy. Mm-hmm. And that we would never look at you know, winter foliage and say like, what is wrong with you trees, right? Like we just go like, of course. And and we know that spring is coming and we know in different areas of the world that looks different, right? Mm -hmm. So person to person, it's going to look different. Context to context, it's going to look different. But it's important for us to keep in mind that if it's just as natural for the entire like organic world to need different things at different times, then why not mindfully observe ourselves curiously with compassion to say, well, then what do I need right now? Can I just honor that instead of clinging to the story and expectations so much that now I'm not taking care of, I'm not listening to 
the things that my body, mind, heart are telling me I need right now. Mm, that is beautiful. I, I, there's so much I love about that. Yeah, that is uh, a beautiful visualization. And we, we would never want ourselves to be in summer 12 months of the year. And so uh, that, that helps us really understand expectation setting for ourselves, um, and for others. And can I point something out Absolutely. there? There is a growth that happens during the dormancy phase, right? The roots go deeper when we prune back. There. Mm-hmm. So if we clung to summer, we actually eventually wouldn't have some of the growth and thriving that we'd want. So having that perspective that every part of the season is actually vital, mm-hmm. needed, not just uh, this terrible portion, like there's something that's going to be there in it, mm-hmm. I think gives us that hope. Yeah, too. absolutely. That is fantastic. Carm, thank you so much um, for being part of this movement of helping world changers enhance their individual and collective team performance. And thank you listeners for downloading The Behaviorist. And we hope you'll subscribe. Please reach out to us through our website, workwisdomllc.com, where you can enjoy Work Wisdom Press and productions, ask questions, contact us to make suggestions for topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes. We're going to leave you today with some wisdom from Marcus Buckingham. Many of us feel stress and get overwhelmed, not because we're taking on too much, but because we're taking on too little of what really strengthens us. Mm